Hi, I'm Shalushi Baxi Ritchie. And I'm Kosha Baxi Karstens. We are sisters and best friends who grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were really loved. We had a lot of friends, but we never felt like we fully fit in. We started to realize that there's probably a lot of other people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was a seed for this podcast. Then during the 2020 election, we watched now Vice President Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence, and we got inspired. We want to hear, share, and amplify the voices of all Americans who have felt othered. We want to give everyone a platform to reclaim their power and their place by standing up and saying, I am speaking. So welcome to our podcast. Welcome yes. to I Am Speaking, the podcast where we give othered American, othered individuals a platform and a place to speak their truth and to tell their story. Um, I would love for you, Kelsey, to introduce yourself. Okay. And this is where I say the thing, right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Please tell me this will all be edited later. Like, um, oh, oh my God. So much editing. So okay. much editing. <laughs> Sometimes like people, and yes, we can edit out everything, but there are these very genuine moments that are quote, I'm putting this in quotes, like mess ups yeah. that just end up, I don't know if he shared this with you, but with Dave, like he said something about like, I don't want to be in an orgy. I'm just going to like go into the I, I overheard that part. I was walking by and I was like, what, what did you, what did you tell them? <laughs> but he's like. I don't want that. And then he's like, I went into the bathroom and put on all my clothes, <laughs> but he said all the clothes. And so we're like, I mean, do you just take everyone's clothes and you're just putting on everyone's clothes and you're like, bye. That tracks. That's on, that's on brand for Dave. <laughs> well, and then it just, it became a running joke. It did. That's like your leverage on not being in an orgy. I will take all People of your clothes. People want you to be in there. You'd be like, I'm going to take everyone's clothes. And you're going to want your clothes back at some point. So don't even try it. Well, and then I go, I go, the only time that doesn't work is if there is somebody whose fetish is like, I want the awkward guy in the corner who doesn't want to be here. You know, like with all the clothes on, with, with all, all the, of clothes the clothes on. on. That's yeah. a very specific fetish, but I bet you it's out there. And oh, then I'm what are you sure gonna do? it is. <laughs> then, right. you, then they have to catch you. Then you just start running. <laughs> naked because you have all their clothes on so they're, yes they're naked and you're so that's kind of a weird and you're a lot less aerodynamic in that situation <laughs> you can't really move properly with all the clothes with on. all the clothes on but then the other person's naked which is also kind of disappointing. well yeah that's so. what i was thinking is like all your dangly bits are are everywhere so oh I, i'm not even i'm like holding my boobs just thinking about it okay yeah all right <laughs> all right so kelsey let's start, like this, over again. Let's start this over again I'm going to leave a lot of this in. Okay. Because so, this is amazing. All right, go ahead. Okay. Uh, hi, I am Kelsey and I am speaking. Welcome. Welcome, Miss Kelsey. Uh, if it is not clear, Kelsey is married to Dave. We're not just <laughs> randomly ripping on Dave, who was just aired a couple weeks ago. Um, but there is a reason that we're ripping on Dave. He is very yes. lovely. He's a lovely man. Yes. And he's just, he's so much fun to make fun of. Like <laughs> he's wonderful. He's a, he's in the next room and he's probably listening to this right now. But what is she saying? But I, he is just, like a true partner. 
Right. Yeah. No, he is just such a goofball and so laid back and easygoing. Um, yeah, he's hilarious. My husband, my husband is also very, very laid back and easygoing. Do you find it, however, difficult sometimes? And I'm clearly speaking from my own experience, but where sometimes you're like, can something bother you, please? Like, shouldn't this bother you? (laughs) And I start like, pushing buttons I love that Brian is so laid back and easygoing it's it's that classic like the thing that you love most about someone is also the thing that you want to murder them over yep Mm -hmm. every once in a while I'll look at Dave and I'll go can you just have a bad day and be cranky occasionally like a normal person before we get too far in this season we're just trying to be really aware Uh, what are your pronouns Kelsey Mm -hmm. uh she her Okay. okay. All three of us yeah. then uh, are the she, she her, her series. Right. Uh, I've never thought about pronouns so much. And then Shayla, she's oldest. My older kid came out as non-binary. So, mm-hmm. and now I think about pronouns so much. I will say it's one of the quote easiest things you can do to show support because it's a word or two or three, but it is one of the hardest things I have to do in terms of like actually putting into practice. Oh, absolutely. I I like to call it linguistic inertia. Like you just have this habit of referring to people in a certain way, especially if it's someone that you've known for a long time as one set of pronouns and is changing to another. What it just takes practice. Like I'll just find reasons to talk about that person and use the right pronouns just so that it starts to feel more natural. Yeah. We have a really good friend who she transitioned in her forties. And so she has two kids and still is the role of dad to them. And for a while, it felt really weird to say, Oh, Hey, would you go ask your dad if she wants some pancakes? You know, because we're so used to dad and he being linked together, but after a while it just stopped feeling weird I've noticed so one of the things that I have done is told my seven-year-old to point it out to me when I misgender Shayla's oldest my nibbling and wow will a seven-year-old catch you every single time (laughs) I bet what other opportunity do younger kids have to be like you're wrong you're wrong Mom, you're wrong. Dad, you're wrong. And you can't get mad because you asked them to do it. (laughs) Yeah. And even if I didn't ask her to do it, she's still in the right to correct me. Yeah. So now, not only is she right to correct me, but now she has permission to correct me. Yeah. She's like laser focused on it. Oh, yeah. Anytime I can get you, mom or dad. (laughs) Uh, So let's transition back to Kelsey. Uh, we know you use she, her pronouns. Um, Kelsey, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I am, this is, this is like the point in a job interview where somebody says, tell us about yourself and you suddenly panic and feel like you have no personality because <laughs> you're like, who am I? What, what do I enjoy doing? It just leaves your head. I can be more specific if that would help. <laughs> no, it's okay. Um, um, we, I've lived in McKinleyville. Well, I've lived in Humboldt County for 20 years. The first 11 years of my life, I lived in San Jose, California, Silicon Valley, and moved up here when I was 11 with my mom, my sister, and my stepdad. Dave and I met a little more than a decade ago, and we've been together for eight years, 
and married for two almost. Our second anniversary is coming up on the 7th, actually. I'm a business owner and a student. I'm finishing up my, finally finishing up the last semester of my bachelor's degree. It only took me 15 years. I, I dropped out slash flunked out of college five or six times. And then I was diagnosed with ADHD at 26. Oh. And suddenly my oh. entire life made sense. It wasn't that I didn't care or I didn't want to do well in school. I desperately wanted to do well. And I cared so much. But for some reason, it just wasn't happening. I spent the first 25, 26 years of my life, just thinking I was bad at being a person, you know, seeing everybody else around me, not, it didn't seem like they were trying as hard, but they were doing way better. Well, you know, when the problem is in your own head, you can't point to your knee and go, it's not supposed to point that way. You can't just plop into somebody else's head. So you have no way of knowing that your own experience and the way your brain works, knowing that that isn't typical. And realizing suddenly that you aren't lazy or stupid or any of those things. No, this is a thing that your brain does and that other brains do. And there's, it, there's some really cool things about it, as well as a lot of drawbacks. I gained so much compassion for myself, like just realizing, oh, okay, wow, no, I've actually done pretty well considering everything that I've had to deal with. Yeah, I think we're all neurodivergent in our own ways, right? Well, it's a spectrum, right? Like everyone's on that spectrum. I mean, like if you talk about ADD in particular, ADHD or whatever acronym you want to call it, procrastination, all the things that characterize ADHD are things that everybody does to some degree yeah. or another. The, port, the point where it crosses over from normal human experience into disorder is when it is significantly disrupting your life in sure. multiple areas. I've been fired multiple times for forgetting things, for missing deadlines, for not noticing errors in my work, even though I went over it three or four times. So yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely a gray area between, oh, well, you know, everybody loses track of time sometimes. Yeah, they do, but not usually to the point that they've been fired for it three, four or five times, even when they're actively trying not to let it affect their lives. I have a kid that's on the autism spectrum. He was diagnosed when he was two. And of course, we don't know what the trajectory of this, you know, our kid's life is going to be. So we're anxious. And we had a really, really fantastic therapist. He said, look, your kid is your kid, right? I think that was like the best thing to be told in that moment of, of anxiety and fear, like what's going to happen. No, your kid's your kid. And there's nothing wrong with him. It's just, he has a set of behaviors that are driven by some neurological, you know, situation that we don't know, we don't understand, but it's been around for a long time and we could change the criteria and he would not qualify tomorrow. It's just at a level where it's interfering with his day-to-day -day functioning, but it's not significantly different than anyone else. And I think that is like, when I think about things like OCD or ADHD, that's what I think about. We're not trying to change people. We're just trying to help them get to the point where they're like, this isn't interfering in my day-to-day. -day. Absolutely. And with getting the diagnosis for ADD, 
it wasn't like, oh, here's what's wrong with me. How do I fix it? It was just having a word for something that I'd been struggling with and not really understanding my entire life, just being able to say, oh, this is what this is. Mm -hmm. This is a thing. Other people have it too. Just knowing what it was and being able to sort of, you know, draw a line around it and say, this is what this is and put a little label on it, ADHD. That was really, really helpful in and of itself, even without getting medication or treatment or anything, just being able to say, this is what this is, yeah, made it a lot less scary. Bringing this back to kind of the topic of this season, I remember, you know, Elisa, who is Dave's friend who connected me with you guys. She is asexual. She identifies as asexual. And she's like, up until you actually see the word, the label, and a lot of people are like, oh, you don't have to label it. But actually for her, seeing the label and seeing other people online who were feeling the same way, you feel like less alone. There are resources now for you. There is a community for you. Oh, I'm not broken. I'm not sick. It's not just me not able to do these things or able to do these things. And you probably felt similar as like, okay, now that it's a thing, that means I'm not alone. Absolutely. I I have this whole metaphor that I like to use when I describe what it was like growing up having ADHD and not knowing it and then getting diagnosed is that if you think of life as a marathon, which is, you know, a really kind of stereotypical thing, but you're running along and you're running along and you're exhausted all the time. And you're just breathing heavily and sweating and exhausted. And you're not doing that well in the race. You're last third of the pack or so and you're just constantly struggling it's really hard and you look around and nobody else seems to be breathing as hard they seem relaxed they're talking they're having a good time and they're going faster than you and so you draw the conclusion understandably that you just suck at running I'm not good at this right yeah absolutely it's that oh well there everyone else is good at this so clearly I'm just bad at this and in this case running is being a person so and then you realize when you get your diagnosis that this whole time you've been wearing shoes that weigh 40 pounds you suddenly realize that oh no you don't suck at running your shoes are just really really heavy yeah that's why you've been working so hard and not getting the same results. And then for me, getting treatment and and then also just learning more about how to work with my brain instead of wasting energy, fighting it, trying to make it work in a neurotypical way. It was like going from those 40 pound shoes to regular shoes. And not only then do you no longer have the weight of those shoes, you have the leg muscles of someone who's been running a marathon with 40 pound shoes. That's a really good point. I still get distracted and I still have to work to focus, but it just gives me just that little boost. You're a person. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it it boosts me to the point that it's possible. That's awesome. That is awesome. So I want to, I want to get this. This has been, I mean, I don't want to sound like this has been great, but, (laughs) but but, like, (laughs) but we did not bring you on here to talk about being neurodivergent, but let's talk about relationships and marriage and sexuality. Tell us about how you met and then how your relationship evolved um, and where you are now. So Dave and I met through the local theater community about a decade ago. He was married at the time 
to someone else, obviously. And I was dating someone who I would later end up marrying. We just kind of tangentially knew each other. We'd been in some productions together, you know, not worked very closely or anything. And so we became Facebook friends and, you know, life went on. He, for a long time, he had a company doing web design and graphic design. And I, as a kid, taught myself web design. I was not a popular elementary school student. I didn't have a lot of friends. Um, In case that wasn't obvious from the fact that I taught myself web design because I thought it would be fun. Fast forward to 10 years ago, he posted something on Facebook about needing somebody to help out with some web design projects that he had. So I started doing that with him. We became really good friends. He'd been divorced at this point. I was married to my then husband and it was not good. And so Dave became, he and I just became really good friends. He was my best friend and he was there for me through the end of my marriage. Nothing happens until well after we were just friends after a while of both of us being single and being just friends, realizing that we were really bad at being just friends. So we started dating. It's been fabulous. And after about six years of dating, we decided, okay, well, let's, you know, let's get married. It makes sense at this point to involve the government in this thing. As far as the style of our relationship, we were monogamous for five or six years you know, Dave knew that I was, I was bi, identified as queer. I was very open about that. So that was never a secret or anything from him. What happened was that I fell in love with one of my really close friends. At one point, so I went to Dave and I said, I'm ha- I have feelings for this person. And I feel like I have to hide them from you. These feelings aren't going away. They're just getting stronger and it's scary. And you're my best friend and feeling like I can't talk to you about this is really hard and is making it harder for me. Were you engaged at this time to Dave? We were. Um, And he responded in the absolute best way possible, which was go ahead and explore this. There were definitely some hiccups. Things ended up not working out between me and this other friend for a variety of reasons. Um, she's fabulous. We're still really good friends. Yeah. It was a little awkward for a while, but now it's fine. So from that point, we just sort of started gradually shifting things in our relationship. It went from, okay, we're monogamous to Well, we're monogamish is the term that Dan Savage coined, which is where if you're not familiar with the term monogamish means you're mostly monogamous, but you might occasionally invite somebody over for a threesome or you might occasionally fool around with other people. It's not so you're you're monogamous, but you're flexible about it. So we went from monogamous to monogamish to okay, well, we're non-monogamous, but we're not polyamorous because Dave in particular really didn't like that word. We'd seen some really unhealthy polyamorous relationships and there were a lot of stereotypes in particular about straight men in polyamory and Dave really didn't want to have that image attached to himself. And so for a while we were 
non-monogamous but not polyamorous and then it was an open relationship then with some ground rules there's a lot of nuance between the terms open relationship and polyamorous there's people that are open meaning okay well you can have other sexual partners but you aren't allowed to have an emotional romantic connection with other partners just for us being open with each other and honest and communicating as our own personal boundaries shifted was really key and just seeing where things went and letting our relationship sort of settle into where it functioned best instead of forcing forcing it in a way yeah absolutely and that's really what all of this has been about for both of us is just sitting back and letting relationships guide themselves I always tell people that are thinking about opening up their relationships. I call baby polyamorous people, I like to call them polywogs, like t- the other word for tadpoles. I mean, they're just, they're, they're adorable and they're excited and they're awkward. And it's just, oh, baby polywog, you're so precious and cute. And, you know, you love watching them grow legs and a tail and, or, you know, lose the tail and all of that. And then they hop out of the pond. But I always tell people is that be aware that your boundaries will shift. I know for Dave and I in particular, there were things back at the beginning when we were first opening up that were definitely, you know, we agreed not to do this and it was good for a while. Like the example for Dave, it, it was really an anxiety trigger for him. If I was with somebody else and he couldn't reach me. He did mention that. He did mention Yeah. That. And so for a long time, I would make sure to, I would check in, I would have my phone with me and, you know, just to respect that boundary that he needed. And after a while, it stopped being something that bothered him. And now if he doesn't hear from me for a few hours, he just thinks, oh, she's having a good time, you know, and it's not a big deal. So things that you think you wouldn't be comfortable with, eventually after you unpack it and just sit with that for a while you figure out okay I wasn't actually uncomfortable with this it was the anxiety of not knowing what my partner's doing and if they're okay and not knowing what's happening and that fear of the unknown that was the problem so once you get comfortable with that turns out okay I'm fine with not being able to reach you now because I know I know where you are I know you're safe and I know we'll be in touch later. And I know that if I call you, you'll pick up and if it's an emergency, I can reach you. So I wanted to ask, um, because this is the second time we've talked about the difference between open marriage and polyamorous relationships. And I just want to ask your opinion, right? Obviously, you're not, you and Dave are not going to be like defining. (laughs) No, absolutely not. Although, I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if you could, but the way that the two of you have set up your relationships, it, would you say that open relationships are primarily geared toward sexual, like the, the ability to engage with other people sexually versus, versus polyamorous relationships, which have a deeper, have a, have a like clearer focus on like the emotional connection between two people. Is that how you would describe it? Am I reflecting some sort of reality back to you? Yeah, the the way that I use those terms is roughly that, is that for Dave and myself, when we were describing ourselves as 
an open relationship, but not being polyamorous. What that meant was that we were open to other sexual connections, but not to dating. And it wasn't, there's this really toxic idea in some open relationships that you're not allowed to care about anybody else that you have sex with, which is really terrible because you should care about everyone that you have sex with. Even if you never learn their name and never see them again, it's still, you should care. And that's good. And it's healthy to care. But for us, it was, okay, we're, we're open to these, these sexual connections with other people, but I'm not going to go out and say, oh, I have a boyfriend or I have a girlfriend. I'm not going to enter into another capital R relationship. We went with that for a while and then realized that that just was really messy and limiting. And the line between what is a romantic connection and what isn't is really kind of arbitrary. And so trying to draw a line in the sand and say, okay, well, this side of the line is sexual, but not romantic. And that's okay. And then six inches further is sexual and romantic. And that's not okay. That started to feel very silly in a way, like artificial, we were cutting our exactly artificial, you know, we, we were, we were cutting ourselves off from these connections because, you know, this, the scary line in the sand that we'd drawn. So we decided, okay, well, we, all right, screw it. Like, fine. We're just, you know, whole hog all the way. We're polyamorous. So be it right off into the sunset with it. So for me, definitely being polyamorous means there's, there's so much, there's so many terms that are used in so many different ways. There's, I mean, even within polyamory, there's so many different types and there's hierarchical polyamory, which is when you have a very defined hierarchy of like, okay, this person is my primary partner. They're the most important. They get the biggest say and the biggest chunk of my life and my time. And then I have secondary partners and they are lower in the pecking order and don't get as much say and don't get as much of my time. And to some degree, some of that is inevitable. Like Dave and I are married. We live together. We have a home together. We have finances together. We have chickens and a house and pets. And, you know, we file taxes together. We have, yeah, we have the same last name. Um, when I go rent a car, he's automatically on there as a approved driver, which I learned last month is a thing. If you're married, <laughs> when the government is involved, that other person yeah. is a primary person. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's not about the emotional connection. It's basically like if somebody sues you, your partner is also involved. Yeah. Right. Or if somebody dies, the other person gets your stuff. Right? Yeah. Taxes. That's that's by far the number one thing. The government doesn't care what kind of relationship you have. <laughs> right. Quick question. Um, I've been avoiding swearing this far. Is that? No. Oh, no, please. Vote. Okay, no. great. You can okay, swear awesome. all you want to. <laughs> Girl, bring it. <laughs> yeah, we swear a lot. And, and for me, I like, if you were like, you can't swear. I would end up swearing more <laughs> because I go, I'd be like, well, what the fuck? Oh, I mean, well, shit, I, I wasn't gonna, but now you again, told you know? me that I can't. So it's, it's, I know. it's like when you I, start dating somebody and you notice the kind of car that they drive and suddenly you start seeing that car everywhere, everywhere, even though it's yes, not actually correct. showing up. There, is a, often. there is a word for that. Well, hold on. There is a term is, for that. And I'm going to find it. It's basically, I mean, in 
therapy, they say it's the thing where they're like, don't think about a pink elephant. And the, yeah, what else do you gonna think about except for a pink elephant? Oh, it's got, I knew it has an awesome, awesome name. It's called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. Yes, yes, that sounds familiar now. So also the, the, the recency bias or frequency illusion, but it's called the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, which I love that name. But one of the things that we, and Shailsha and I have been talking about just in general is the fact that like marriage has gotten much harder in the past 50 or 60 years. And part of that is that we ask everything of one partner now. We're back in the 50s. I mean, even before the 50s, right? It is in the last 200 years that marriage has become a romantic proposition. And then the last 70 years or so, that partnership between two people has been the ultimate expression of love, right? You can't see if you're listening to this, but I am nodding with basically my entire body right now. Like this, this is the kind of topic that's like, let's, let's get some wine and spend four hours rambling about because yes, absolutely. Because before, before the 1800s, marriage was all about, it was a business thing. It was an economic unit. It's about marriaging land and, you know, it's about land and property and, and security and things like that. And then it became a romantic proposition, but not, not in the way that we would think about it, right? That people get married and they talked about love, but they, you weren't expected to necessarily be romantically engaged with the person you're married to. Your love happened outside of marriage. And then in the early 1900s, love and marriage came together and became inextricably linked. And over time, it ended up being that one's partner had to be the end all and be all the, you know, the alpha and omega of everything you might ever want. Absolutely. Your lover, your therapist, your best friends, everything. But even back in like, let's say the fifties, and this is what I was saying about like the fifties. Oh, when I'm, you know, when the husband came home from work, the wife wasn't like, oh my God. And then I have to talk about like, there was not that conversation of like the therapy conversation and the best friend conversation. Let's talk about sports and let's say it was about like the household and the kids and stuff like that. And so this change of not only is it romantic, but now you represent everything to me. Can you talk a little bit about how that, because you're clearly very passionate about it. What was that part of this decision to be like, I I can't find, I don't want to find everything in this one person. Let's branch this out when you decided to move into polyamory. That was a huge part of the decision for me in particular, like being bisexual and I just want to preface by saying that for me I identify as bisexual rather than pansexual because first of all when I was figuring out my sexuality I don't think I even knew what pansexual was and also for me I am attracted to different genders in different ways and for different reasons sure which is why I identify as bisexual rather than pansexual where gender just doesn't even come into the equation at all Gender does matter to me. It's just not a deal breaker in any way. So I just want, I want to clarify that point, right? 
So when you say you're bisexual, what you're saying as opposed to pansexual, that you're saying that when you're attracted to people who present as men, that you want them to be a certain way and that people who present as- Not necessarily. It's, it's really kind of evolved for me over my life. When I you know, was in my late teens and early 20s, identifying as bi, I was very much, oh, I'm into masculine men and feminine women, and I have no problem with androgyny or anything. It just doesn't normally get my motor going, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, and really just kind of, that's one of the best things about this process of being polyamorous is just getting to know myself more about how I experience attraction. How do I fall in love? How do I experience that with different people and with different genders and just really getting to know myself and what that feels like for me has been amazing. Being attracted to or sexually involved with a cisgender man is very different than the way that I experience attraction and sexuality with a cisgender woman or vice versa. I mean, it's all, it's constantly evolving for me, the way that I understand it. So let's, let's parse these two things. We can either follow the path about like your own self-discovery going through polyamory or your relationship, you know, process through polyamory. Where do you want to go right now? What feels like the right thing to talk about in this moment? Let's get back to, um, I really want to keep going with the question that I started answering and then I got lost in the weeds. So how did this help you figure out what kind of relationship you wanted to have? Like you're, you know, you're thinking about polyamory and the context of your relationship and being like, well, not one person can be all things to me. So talk about how your relationship with your partner, maybe not even then husband, but you know, you're serious with him. And then how polyamory helped you like have a healthier relationship with your partner. Yes, absolutely. And for me in particular, one of the big things that I had a lot of anxiety about coming into a monogamous relationship with a straight man was the way that it keeps popping into my head is, oh my God, am I never going to get to play with a pair of tits again? Like ever again. And that's, you know, not something that, I mean, boobs are awesome. Like, I don't want to give that up forever, you know, and in a more serious way, like am I, I, I never had a girlfriend. I'd never been in a relationship with a woman and I'm going to use men and women here as terms, just because it's easier than trying to encompass all of human sexuality and gender expression. A lot of people think that bisexuality is trans exclusive or transphobic. It is absolutely not. I just want to make that very clear. <laughs> right. It's good to be clear about that because I think that that is, you know, well, why pan versus bi? Like, is is that what the deciding factor is? So it's good that you put it out there, like at least in your purview, that's not what we're talking about. Right. And that man, male and women or man and woman is shorthand for a certain thing. Right. Absolutely. And I know for me, I choose by because that's the label that feels most correct to me. And who knows, maybe five years from now, I'll decide, you know what? No, I feel like pan is a better label for me now. It's, it's fluid and that's the label that feels right to me now. So it's the one that I use. So anyway, going, 
going into this committed monogamous relationship with a straight man who was, he was wonderful, but it, and I, and I loved him. And Dan Savage talks a lot about the price of admission for a relationship that there's, there's going to be a cost to it. And for me, if the cost of spending my life with my best friend, this man that I, that I loved and who was my partner in every sense of the word was giving up boobs forever. I, you know, decided that I was willing to pay that, but I had a lot of anxiety is that what if five years from now, 10 years from now, I'm resentful or I feel that I've missed out on that. And that was what I had a lot of anxiety about after we got engaged and leading up to marriage was I, you know, I'm making this commitment and feeling like this is something that I can give up forever. But what if I change my mind? Yeah. Well, I'm doing it for you, but good Lord, this is going to be hard in, in the throes of emotional high that is driven by all hormones. We all know, I mean, we talked about the beginning of the podcast, there is nothing worse than being like, yeah, I love this about you. Oh, five years ago, being like, I swear to God, if you do this again, you might not <laughs> live to see another day. Right. And that's something that someone is they're They're not doing it to you or you're not being constrained by them. They're just doing a thing that they do. And him not having boobs is just a thing that he does. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But when it's something fundamental, like, like your, your sexual attraction or your identity or something that someone's like being in this relationship means you cannot express a part of yourself. It's really tempting to say in the moment, cause you're all like on a hormonal high. Yeah. Yeah. I could totally do that. When that stuff wears off, that's where res- like resentment is almost the worst thing in a relationship. Absolutely. And I definitely don't want to say that there's also the stereotype, which is why, you know, there's a lot of bi erasure, even within the LGBTQ plus community. And I I super don't want to make it sound like I agree with a stereotype that bi people can never be monogamous. Um, Because that's, that's certainly not true. But I know for me, this was, this was an issue. And absolutely, it really felt like am I okay with not expressing this part of who I am ever again? The maturity level there is, I mean, some people never hit that, right? Where you're just like, well, I don't want to resent. That's something like, what, you always going to throw that back at, you know, like, well, I gave up boobs for you forever. Like, and then suddenly (laughs) it becomes like, any argument suddenly becomes about boobs absolutely or it becomes a thing that you throw at someone well look at all I did for you and Kosha and I know someone who you know got married and sexual openness became part of the relationship and it became a real sticking point for that marriage because that's not the premise that they ever negotiated with each other they didn't talk about what they truly wanted can I really give up this part of myself to be in a relationship with someone? Or can we figure out a way where I can be all of myself and you can also be all of yourself 
and we can still be together. Absolutely. Can we touch on the fact also how much of that was informed, like your, your, your questioning, if you really could give that up, was informed by never having a girlfriend, right? Like never having been in a relationship with a woman. I mean, you can't go back and this is definitely hypothetical, but how much of your decision to say like, I can't give this up was informed by that lack of that absence of experience? I don't know. I mean, because I, I definitely I had sexual experiences with women before. So it wasn't it wasn't something that I'd realized about myself a lot. I mean, not I don't want to say a lot, but there are women that realize that they're by years into a monogamous heterosexual relationship. Mm-hmm. And this wasn't the case for me, but I'd never, you know, I'd never like I said, I'd never been in an official relationship with a woman. I hadn't had as much experience with women as I did with men. And, and I don't want to say it wasn't, there wasn't a point where we sat down and said, I don't think I can ever, I can give this up. I don't think I can do this. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was, I mean, that was definitely part of it, but it was just sort of a natural evolution of our relationship. It's funny going into relationships when I was monogamous, when you start dating somebody, you have this end goal of finding the person that you end up with, you know, that you marry, this is your one person, it's true love, you're done, you win gold star game over. And so you always have this little voice in the back of your head, whenever you start dating somebody, is this person worth giving up all other genitals for? Forever. And every time you have an argument, or, or, or they, they snore, or they fart or something, you're like, is this really worth giving up? There were other genitals in my world. There were other genitals, like, right? Like, is this really worth giving all of that up? There's just this constant fear of, oh, if I, if I picked wrong, is this? And that can lead to a lot of anxiety and a lot of resentment. And Dave is such a wonderful, laid back, happy-go-lucky, optimistic, sunshiny guy like you mentioned before, a lot of the things that I loved about him the most, I would get frustrated because they meant that he wasn't different things. He wasn't, wasn't intense and assertive and a go-getter, which is also sexy. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that we talked about with Dave is just how like the 80-20 proposition. I don't know if you've heard of that, but this idea that like the Pareto principle. Yeah. If you get 80% of what you want in anything, you're doing really well. But over time, you learn to, you know, discount that 80 and you look for the 20% you're not getting. And then you chase a 20 and then you realize just how much you screwed yourself by giving up the 80. Yeah. So when you talk about Dave being this, this one kind of person and you go, that's awesome, but, but you're not this kind of person. And I would also like to have experiences with that kind of person too. Absolutely. And it got to the point where I was getting resentful and frustrated that he was who he was and not this other person. Not that I didn't love who he was, but that, like you said, that 80%, you start focusing on the 20% you're not getting. And I would get frustrated and resentful that he wasn't the parts that were missing. Right. Why can't you be laid back, but also intense when I want you to be those things? Yes. Right. 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 Yeah. Just not on my schedule, though. 
just check with me about yeah. who I need you to be and be <laughs> that person when I need you to be that person, which is not surprise, surprise how people operate. Also, is that that hard? Come on. That's not right? hard. Yeah, just be everything and read my mind whenever I want it. Yeah. Which, so I just want our our listeners to know, I mean, there are three <laughs> people who identify as women on this call, on this conversation right now, but I'm a hundred percent sure that every male or male identifying listener has had the same issue or same thought process with their partner or partners, All which is why can't you be what I need you to be right now and read my mind about what I need the moment I need it and do that thing. Right. I think we, this is a thought process we all go through in long-term partnerships, either friendships or relationships or even sibling situations. I know just speaking about my own sibling relationships. uh, Drive-by, what the hell? Okay, did I mention (laughs) your name? Someone said you. Yeah. Because there are other two, we also have two other siblings. I'm gonna say something that, that Dave and I say sometimes where one of us will say, I didn't say anything. I'll say, yes, but you were not saying it very loudly. Thank you. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. Right. That's so great. The sound of you not saying it was, was overwhelming resounding. everything else. Yeah. <laughs> that when you're in a, the, when you're in a relation, a deep, meaningful relationship with someone, regardless of their gender and your gender or your orientation, whatever it is, you can get to the place where you look at the other person, you go, why aren't you being the person I need you to be right now, even though you were never that person? And secondly, why can't you read my mind? I shouldn't have to ask for anything. You should just know. I should never have to ask for anything. Right. But what's so brilliant, and we talked about this with Dave, is that polyamory requires you to put all of your bullshit aside. Or own it actually own all yeah you are responsible for your own bullshit and getting your needs met right let's say not your bullshit all of that bullshit aside. yeah and own your bullshit and let the other person own their bullshit absolutely and so before towards you know the the end of the time period where dave and i were monogamous i i was having a lot of anxiety about getting married and being monogamous in, in a way that I really wasn't expecting to have before we got engaged. And I didn't, and I would get resentful of him for being who he was, even though I, I loved who he was. I fell in love for him with him for being that person. And I didn't like being resentful of him. Opening up the relationship just took all that pressure off. I, I was, I mean, almost immediately I felt myself being more appreciative of who Dave was because I could just enjoy him for who he was and what I loved about him instead of focusing on that 20% that he wasn't because I knew he didn't have to be that I could go and find somebody who was those those other things that I needed and love that person for who they were And instead of going, you know, why aren't you this one thing you're not? And I I feel like this really holds true, even in monogamous relationships. I know that before we were monogamous, Dave is a gym rat. He loves to work out. He loves to go to the gym. He loves to lift weights. My ideal gym trip is to go in and get out in the minimum amount of time necessary. 
trying to explain to my very traditional mother-in-law who got married in the 60s and that we don't have to share every activity or hobby with each other. I loved that he could go to the gym and I loved that I didn't have to do it with him. <laughs> that because I would it wouldn't be fun for either of us. I would be miserable and my being miserable would make him miserable. So I'm like, no, go to the gym with somebody else who wants to do that shit with you. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like I I love watching Downton Abbey and, and trashy reality TV and Dave would just be catatonic within 15 seconds. So I don't ask him to do that with me because why would I want him to do something that he doesn't enjoy? That would, you know, he'd be cranky and that would make me cranky and it wouldn't be fun. And we have lots of hobbies that we do share and activities that we do together, but we don't have to share absolutely everything. Yeah. One of the things he mentioned to us oh my God. when he was talking was about his whole thing about bridges. Oh yeah. And, and how <laughs> he, his partner, his, he's got a, he's got like a bridge partner. Like someone who's like, let's go check out bridges. I think his girlfriend, like he went on a road trip with his girlfriend. He did. He recently went on a trip with his girlfriend up to Oregon yeah. and they looked at bridges and he kept messaging me talking about how you know, they spent hours like looking at bridges and, and talking about this one bridge designer. Oh. And I'm thinking, I, I'm so happy for you. I love that for you. I love that you're doing that. And I'm so glad that yeah. I'm 300 miles away. You're like, I'm so happy for you, but I'm so happy for me that I'm here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what ends up happening in that case is that either one person gives up the thing that they're passionate about because they yeah. don't, their partner doesn't want to go. I want to part, not even party, party, like clubbing party. I just want to be with people all the time. I want to host parties. I'm going to go to house parties. I want to have backyard gatherings. I want to be with people all the time. My partner has about one tenth to one fifth of the capacity to interact with people that I do. That's being generous. I'm yeah. being generous. But, I, but like you end up giving that up or you end up doing something, getting dragged on along a bridge trip that you're like, I am miserable. <laughs> and then the other person knows you're miserable, but like they're doing it for you. And then it ends up being this, yeah. like resenting, either resenting or like, I'm sorry, we have to go. We're going to stop at this one more bridge or whatever. So yeah, you end up meeting in the middle and neither of you are happy. Nobody's happy. Right. Right. No. And this, this story that I shared a couple of days ago was about the fact that my husband is an avid cyclist. He has, as far as I know, five bikes, but maybe more. <laughs> I love that you're not sure how many bikes are in your house. Yeah, like she lost, she lost track. He's got four, four that I know of in Illinois. And then his employer is in Boise. So he has a bike there, but he may have two bikes there. Like, I don't, <laughs> I honestly don't know. He loves it so much he is so into that stuff and he's like look at check it out my reaction is that's great like and I'm excited for you but like literally I'm not feeling that excitement yeah like I'm excited that you're excited for you yeah this is great I'm happy that you're happy I'm not excited because this happened to you I don't really care that much about it yeah um and so how amazing is it for 
your partner to be able to share in something that they deeply, truly are love with someone that also loves that thing. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, absolutely. They get to do what they, they love. Do that. And I get the Cliff's Notes synopsis at the end and I don't spend six hours looking at bridges. So it's just, it's win, win, win all around. I can handle about, you know, half an hour of bridges and I'm good, but any more than that. And so I, I love that he gets to go do this and, and get so excited and interested and, and love this. I love that for him. And I love that I am not keeping him from experiencing that because it is not something that I am equally enthused about. So we've talked a little bit about how being polyamorous has helped in your marriage and have a stronger marriage. And then we've talked about how it's helped you learn about yourself and like what's important to you. One thing that we haven't explored is how has identifying, actually acting and living out those values, how has it helped you in your relationships with people in general? In a few different ways. It's absolutely helped my relationships. I, there's this term that I think Dave mentioned you called polycule. Yeah, we love that. First of all, also took me like 30 minutes. Uh, we just need to acknowledge right now that Kosha is a bio major. I'm a scientist. Yeah, like I am a scientist. She is a scientist. And it took Kosha 30 or 40 minutes into that conversation to make the connection between molecule and polycule. <laughs> and it was because how Shayla, she said it. So uh, Dave was calling it a polycule. He said it several, and I was like, well, that word makes sense, right? Like, and I can, uh -huh. even like mentally, I was like seeing this framework. And then Shalushi said it like um, polycule, like she put a space between it. And then I think uh -huh. I cut Dave off and I was like, oh, oh, like molecule, polycule. And I cut him off 40 minutes in. When we were talking about how polycules might oh, bump up right. against that's each right, other, right? right. <laughs> that one polycule on another polycule might like meet up and how do you negotiate that? Mm -hmm. And that's when Coach oh. was like, wait. And then I get really excited. <laughs> and then both of them, I, we're on Zoom, but you could tell that they looked at each other. <laughs> This bitch, what the hell? <laughs> I'm laughing so hard because I do things like that all the time. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The person that's like, I'm in neuroscience, <laughs> didn't get that? Because that's not a word in science. Okay. <laughs> so, okay, so my, my girlfriend's other partner, who he and I are also involved, but we're also not, it's like we're not dating, but we're also not not dating. It's It's very vague and weird, but also fine. And it's complicated on Facebook. It, it is what it isn't. Like, it's complicated, but we're not worried about it being complicated. Like, it's a complicated and that's fine. Okay. It's complicated, but no one needs to put it on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, so um, are you familiar with the game Minecraft? Yes. We have children. Yes. So, um, yeah. <laughs> are you kidding me? We both have children. Yes. Well, I, I like to play Minecraft. And recently, you know, it's the, it's, it's the apocalypse. We can't hang out in person. So I made a Minecraft server with a bunch of friends and I was talking to him about how I wanted to build a giant aquarium and, you know, put fish and there's axolotls in Minecraft. And I got all excited and I wanted to put axolotls in it. And he immediately started, you know, digging out this giant room to make an aquarium. So he works on it. And then one day I, I come over and I, and I tell him, oh yeah, no, I, I finished 
the aquarium that we were talking about, you need to, and I was trying to get him to log in and see it. And he's like, okay. And I mentioned, you know, yeah, no, like I, I put kelp and, and like a sunken boat in there. And then I filled it with water and he goes, wait, you filled it with water. Yeah. It's an aquarium. Turns out he and I had completely opposite assumptions on which side of the glass room the water was going to be on <laughs> and the look on his Did face you, fl you flooded the room yes which is what i which i assume had been the plan all along because we were building an aquarium and water goes inside an aquarium he was building the room where we look at the aquarium so the other side was the aquarium Oh my God. This poor man, he spends forever making this giant room and then I go and I fill it with water and I'm all proud of myself and excited. The, the look on his face was utter perfection. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so I understand the not getting the molecule polycule thing. For 30 minutes, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so polycule. Back to polycule, right. Right, uh, right, back on topic it's very much like a web. It's all connected, different relationships. You know, I am connected to my partner by our relationship and my partner is connected mm -hmm. to their partner by their relationship. And so they're all interconnected in this system. I firmly believe that every relationship in that system should be making all the other relationships that it's connected to better, not just not harming them in any way, but actively making them better. Wait, I want you to stop for a second and say that again, because that is actually the most beautiful sentiment we've heard about relationships and is really important for people to hear. You believe? Every relationship should be actively improving every relationship that it's connected to. And I mean, not just, oh, well, my husband's girlfriend, his relationship with her doesn't harm our marriage. It's that, no, that relationship makes our marriage better. And our marriage makes their relationship better. And it should. And if any relationship isn't doing that, it doesn't belong there. It genuinely makes me happy when my girlfriend's relationship with her partner is going well. I want, I want that for them. Not just because it benefits me because she's happier, but because that means that, that I'm doing my job, that I'm... We're all lifting each other up. Everyone is healthier and happier which means we all can actually, even then individually, you're able to lead a happier, healthier life. I, I joke sometimes that I need to be polyamorous because I can be so emotionally needy that I need all of these people telling me that I'm doing a good job all of the time. You're doing yeah. a great job. <laughs> thank you. I Thank you. I needed that. But it's, it really is just this, I have this amazing support network. And so that when I have a bad day, I have all of these people telling me, no, you're doing great. You are loved. You are safe. You are supportive. You know, we're, you got this. We've got your back. And that is just such an incredible feeling. If you need someone who's going to be like, it's all okay. Everything's going to be fine. You know, don't worry about it. Tomorrow's a new day. You have one person, but if you need like that tough love. Yeah. If I need a kick in the ass. Yeah. You're not expecting like. Brian, my husband, Brian, is not going to be the tough love guy. So if I need that, I'm going to Shailoshi, right? Or I'm going to <laughs> Shailoshi, really. Oh, no. I'm 100% that's like, 
it sounds like you need to get your head out of your ass. She's not, she's having wine. She's not like that, but sometimes she is. I know. No, I don't ever say that, but I'm very much also that person that's like, I love you, but I will call you on your bullshit. Right. In a, in a loving, caring way. I, I always tell people, you can ask me any question you want, but make sure you're ready to hear the answer because I will tell you honestly. Do you want the truth? You want the real truth? Because I will, I will, I will love you through the hard thing I'm going to say. Uh-huh. I will, I will love you and tell you you're being a dumbass. <laughs> Kosha will test you. That's my, that's my vibe all the time. Um, no, I can understand why this is hard for you, but maybe have you thought about why you are contributing? To <laughs> have you thought about how you're the problem here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Which that's what some people need to hear at times, but they also need to hear a different message. And and the more love can be poured in in different ways, the better it is for everybody, right? Absolutely. The way I express love is not the way that Kosha expresses love, not the way that my husband expresses love, or they her express her husband expresses love, and yet it's a, it's love. It's it's like a, a forest or an ecosystem in that when one part of it flourishes, it helps the entire whole the system to do better and to be better the whole point is that if you rely on one source Mm -hmm. for everything that's a recipe for disaster because when that source goes away you're just screwed so that like the the flip side of having this amazing interconnected woven support network is knowing that everyone else within that network has that too. It takes the pressure off of me to try to be everything to my husband or to my girlfriend or my other partners is that I know that they have these other sources of support that they can lean on. So I can just say, Hey, I, I, I don't got this today. I, you know, I'm dealing with my own stuff. I'm not feeling emotionally resilient right now, I can't be the support for you and know that that's okay. That I am not cutting them off from their one source of comfort Mm -hmm. that they can, that they can get what they need to get in order to take care of themselves. And that it doesn't always have to come from me. And that is amazing. So one of the things we talked about with your partner is that he went through a series of emotional psychosocial like reckonings about who he was and what he was comfortable with and it was in stages and he and he was very honest about feeling a little competition or jealousy and having to move through those all those things did you have any of that oh absolutely like what what would you say is like the pitfalls you know how did you reckon with that yeah like what's the up and downs of all that stuff One of the things that people say a lot of times is, oh, I could never be polyamorous. I'd get too jealous. There's this this idea that people in polyamorous relationships don't experience jealousy. They've just somehow like severed that emotional limb and just it's just done and they never deal with it. And that's that's not true at all. We view jealousy as the sort of harbinger of the apocalypse in any relationship where if if you feel jealousy, something is 
horribly wrong. Like the alarm claxons are going off. Either your partner is doing something that they shouldn't do because they shouldn't be making you feel jealous or you're being controlling and a bad partner because you're feeling jealousy. And part of being successful in any sort of any, in anything basically, but especially in polyamorous relationships is realizing that jealousy is an emotion just like anything else. And at the end of the day, emotions are just input. They're like sound or light or texture or something. They're just another form of sensory information that we get. And so learning to not demonize jealousy and to just get comfortable with being uncomfortable about things. I mean, so people in polyamorous relationships, again, from my own experience, yada, yada, but it's not that they experience less jealousy. We actually experience more jealousy. We're just better at it because we get more practice. We're okay with going, okay, I'm feeling jealous about this. Let's figure out why. Is it because I wish I was more athletic and outgoing like your other partner? And so I feel insecure that I, I wish I could meet that need for you, but I'm not. And so that makes me feel like I failed. Is it because I want to go look at bridges? I mean, I don't, but like it, I want to go. That's just an example. You asked someone else to go look at bridges and I wish you would have asked me. Or you're spending, like we used to spend weekends together and now you're spending them with somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. We used to go and look at the axolotls, but now you're always off looking at bridges. And so we never look at axolotls anymore. And that makes me sad. And so instead of just going, oh, I'm jealous, just, you know, do not pass go and everything here, you have to figure out, okay, why am I jealous? And what part of this is making me feel insecure? And, you know, we, we all get like jealousy. It's never going to go away. We, I mean, I still have that knee jerk. Oh, Dave is going to like this other person so much more than me. You know, he's going to decide that, that this other person is, is more exciting, is better, you know, loves bridges and, isn't going to want to be with me anymore. And that's, that's just part of the the lizard brain anxiety. And that's never going to go away. You just learn to let it do what it needs to do and tell you what it needs to tell you and not let it run your life. That's a really normal feeling. That's an emotion. I mean, and in other aspects of our lives, we don't have the apocalyptic thought. Like I think about you know, Shayla, she, and we have two other siblings and I, and I've been really honest, like I, you know, you're spending time with ex sibling and I just miss you. Like I'm jealous because you and I used to go out for lunch twice a week and now we're not doing that anymore. So, and then it's not like, well, our relationship must be fucked. It's just that you have to talk through those things. Yeah. And it's different in sibling relationships where you cannot escape them. (laughs) But I think the truth, (laughs) right. You can't, your parents and your siblings, you're like forever and ever, regardless of whether you never talk to someone ever again, they're still your parents and your siblings. But the thing about partners is that it's about being chosen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's about someone seeing something in you that they, they elevate above everyone else. Ultimately, that's a competitive thing because there might be other people out there that are more that thing than you. Absolutely. 
you just happened to be the first person that met that that set of criteria. Yeah, right? and it really comes back to this idea that that love is not a zero sum game. Having loving somebody else doesn't make your love for another person any less. But we do only have so many hours in the day, and that's where it gets tricky. <laughs> You know, and we kind of touch on this a little bit with Dave, um, and we talked about kids. I have um, a very close friend who's polyamorous and is married to a woman who's polyamorous, and they have three children, and that is literally the problem, is that they have three (laughs) children. I think their oldest is now eight, so they have three kids under eight. It's children that need constant tension. You are actively responsible for keeping these larval humans from <laughs> falling off a cliff or starving to death. Like, yeah. But regardless of people have pets, they have elder parents, they have jobs, and those all filter into this ability to engage in the relationships that one might want to. So can you talk a little bit about that? It's about commitments. And how does that factor into how you, you know, parse your time and whether one partner is like, wait, I miss you. And the other partner is like, I also miss you. And how do you manage that? There's, there's a lot of memes and jokes out there about how, you know, you're truly polyamorous when you start using Google calendar, <laughs> you know, and then that, oh, people with polyamorous are just people who have a scheduling fetish. And then there's this <laughs> other one. I love that says, oh yeah, no, I like you. I, I can't wait to spend the rest of our, um, let me check my calendar, alternate Wednesdays together. Because, you know, love is infinite, but time is is definitely not. There is going to be a little bit of, okay, well, Dave is spending time with this other partner. And that does just by basic math mean less time for me. And that is hard. But it's something that we've decided is worth it because of all the other positive things that it brings to our relationship and to our lives as individuals. You have to give a lot more because there's so many connections that you're trying to maintain and schedules that you're trying to juggle and people that you want to spend time with. You also get all of that in return. I'm, I'm definitely not one of those people that says, oh, everybody should be polyamorous. Polyamorous is, you know, is the best. I mean, it happens to be the best for us. And there's definitely that temptation to go, oh, these monogamous people and their silly monogamous problems, like everything would be better if they were polyamorous. Like, it's really tempting to do that. And we try not to because it's it's not for everybody. But for us, it's worth it. It's worth it off. Well, one of the most beautiful things I would say that, both you and your partner have shared with us is that polyamorous relationships can look different depending upon the people in those relationships. God, why is every polyamorous relationship in the media depicted as centered on sexual behavior? That's not what it is for everyone. For some people, yeah, polyamory is about sex. For other people, it's more about emotional intimacy. Absolutely. And I mean, it's just, and even within, you know, one person, the way that they approach relationships, when you're approaching monogamous relationships, it's with this, the end goal in mind that, you know, you get married, 
you have 2.5 children, you live together, you die in each other's arms. That's, that's the goal. And we view any relationship that doesn't last forever to be a failure. Yeah. And that's just really, that's fucked up. And, you know, there's this, one of my favorite authors is a woman named Glennon Doyle. And Mm -hmm. she talks about how relationships are like plants. You have perennial plants that come back year after year. And sometimes they die back from the winter and they come back and they're even stronger and healthier. And, and then you have some relationships that are annual plants, meaning that they're only there for a season, they bloom and then they die. But the important thing is that after they go, the soil is richer for them having been there. You can have a relationship that doesn't last forever and it's still beautiful and poignant and meaningful and valuable. That's the thing that I have with, you know, some of my other partners. I mean, is that like, we're never going to move in together. We're never going to get married. We're never going to have kids. That's okay. You know, we can just let our relationship be what it is and not have to force it. And like, oh, well, is this going to, is this, is this the one that's going to win the game show? It's just enjoying it for what it is. So my bestest friend in the whole universe, who, when we were talking to Dave, I was like, I think I'm in a polyamorous relationship with her and my partner, my best friend in the whole world is my life partner. It's not sexual. We've never even kissed in any mm-hmm. romantic way, but thinking about my life without her is, it's not worth it in some way. Absolutely. And there are other people in my life like that too. I'm devastated by the idea of living a life without those people in my life. This lovely person said to me, you know, friends for a reason, a season or forever. And that's kind of how you bum. I think about partners they are for a reason. They're there because you need something from them or they're just because it's a time in your life that you need to do the thing you need to do a thing, right? Or because they had really sexy shoulders and sometimes that's, that's the need. reason. Yeah, absolutely. Because the, because you know what? I need to get laid. That's a reason. Yeah, that is a good reason. A season being like, you've just moved to a place and you you need to have friends or you need to, you need to move into a place in your life and you're doing a thing. And it's a short term seasonal type of relationship. But then after three years, it's over. You've outgrown each other for whatever reason, or it's forever. But I think that's what it comes down to. Either it's for a thing it's for a time or it's going to have traction and be forever. What I love about polyamory is that it doesn't necessarily hold on to any particular relationship. It allows each individual to say, why am I here? And why am I engaging with this person? The beautiful thing about polyamory is I've heard you and Dave describe it. Everyone gets to decide at any given moment, what those relationships are and that you yourself must own what you're engaging with, with other people and what your needs are. You can't put your shit on someone else and be like, why aren't you X, Y, and Z? Mm -mm. I need X, Y, and Z. Can you give it to me? And if not, where can I find it? Which is such a flip 
it's it's very freeing in that you you are responsible for getting your own needs met and it doesn't mean that you can't ask your partner to give you the things that you need and that's that's not what it means at all it doesn't mean oh well if you're not happy it's your fault and your partner can just be a jerk for no reason it's that if if say you know i need x y and z and this person says oh well i can only give you y i don't get to get mad at them for not giving me x and z if i need x and z it is on me to either end that relationship and find someone that can give me all three or find other ways to get those needs met and I, I think another really nuanced, like beautiful thing that I love about polyamory is that, like you mentioned, you have, you know, your, your friend who's your life partner and you have your marriage and all of that. Polyamory doesn't view one of those relationships as inherently more important or more valid than the other. Especially again, in our culture, we have this idea that you know, your, your marriage, your, your romantic life partner, like that's the most important relationship. Yeah. No matter what, you know, anybody else doesn't get to be more important than that. They're just automatically less. I know for, for Dave and I, in particular, we both just had this sort of natural, we never really had to talk about it. Idea that, you know, that our other relationships they're, they're different. They're not less. I don't view Dave's relationship with his girlfriend as less important or less valid than his relationship to me, just because we're married and we live together. It's, it's different. That doesn't make it any less important in his life or any less meaningful. It's just different. different. That's amazing. Like, and to hear you and Dave both mm-hmm. say the same things in different places is amazing. If someone is in the place where you might've been 10 years ago and being like, I'm not sure I'm good with this monogamy thing, but I want to be with this person. What kind of advice would you give them? This is what you can do or think about this. My, my biggest piece of advice is to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. I mean, that's just kind of my, my life advice for everything. We have this instinctive response to pain, which is to avoid the thing that causes it. And your brain responds to physical pain and emotional pain in pretty much the same ways that this hurts. We're not going to touch it again. And that's a really great survival technique for when we're out running around and you step on a pointy rock, you're going to not step on that rock again because it hurt. But when you're confronting your own insecurities and emotional vulnerabilities, it's, you're going to be poking tender spots sometimes that you didn't even know were there. You're going to go, oh, well, there was a landmine that we weren't expecting. And it's, it's going to be emotionally painful at times. And you have to be willing to sit with that and go, yeah, this, this hurts. This is uncomfortable, but it's okay. I can process that and work through it and not just run away. My, my second piece of advice is your boundaries and your labels and your definitions of everything. They're going to change. Dave and I, if you had told me four years ago that Dave and I would be polyamorous, I would have laughed myself sick. It was just unthinkable at that time. But now we're 
we are polyamorous and we love it. And we, I don't think either of us could ever go back. This is just so much better for us. Like I've mentioned earlier, things that, that Dave really wasn't comfortable with at the beginning now don't bother him at all. And, and you'll find as it goes both ways, things that you think aren't important to you, you discover, okay, well, it, it really is important to me that we spend Sunday night together so that we start our work week together on Monday morning. Like that's, that's sacred to me. That's really important. That, that isn't something that either Dave or I have. It was just, just an example. And you got to be willing to let those boundaries shift things that you agree on with your partner and like, okay, well, I'll always, I won't spend the night at another partner's house. I'll always come home and sleep with you in our bed. That if that's something that works for you, I mean, that then go with it, but you don't need to keep that if it's not serving you anymore. When, when Dave and I got married, we were monogamish at that point. We weren't polyamorous. There was nothing in our marriage vows about forsaking all others or about till death do us part because he and I had both been married before. And it's really hard to stand up there and promise forever to somebody when you've made that promise before and had to break it. even if you had a very good reason, had to take it back and had to break it. It, it feels very disingenuous ingenuous to promise somebody forever. And, you know, it's a, we don't know what's going to happen in 10 years. We could be different people. So what we just, we settled on was that we are going to choose each other as long as it's good. And if it stops being good, then we are going to respect each other enough to let it end and let it, be what it was and let that be a beautiful, wonderful thing instead of trying to force it. And let that be what, what builds on the soil for your lives moving forward. Even if that happens to be your lives separately, it still was beautiful and wonderful and can help was there for a reason, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it, it, it just because it, it ended doesn't mean that it didn't matter a lot of the things in life that we find most meaningful and most beautiful and most impactful on us are things that don't last. And that's, that's part of what is so beautiful about it. And I think that's, that's also part of what it helps that Dave and I both have a theater background. Theater is inherently temporary. If you, even if you take the same show and the same cast and perform it in a different place, it's going to be different every time because the energy and the time and the world and the place that you're in and the, the energy of the audience, it's different every time. And that is what makes theater so beautiful and incredible and why it is endured because it is ephemeral and that's what makes it special it exists and then it's gone. It's, it's, it's sad because you put all of this energy into something and it's beautiful and then it fades, but that's also why it's so wonderful. 
So um, the last question is, I know Dave kind yes, of mentioned and the it. Funnest this question. is the funnest question. And we end up laughing and then incorporating it into our own world. Like the best part is that we get to share <laughs> the stories we've heard from other people because they're awesome. Well, and because you're just like, I'm the one who has all of these weird things and then other people have their weird things. So can you tell, so we heard from Dave about um, your eyes and ears and feet. Uh-huh. And sneeps. Sneeps. Yeah, sneeps versus sneeps, mm-hmm. right? Uh-huh. So what are some of the FAMLACs that you have thought about either with Dave or, you know, some of your other polycule or your, your parents or whatever it is? Can you give us some examples? Yeah. I actually, I have one example from when I was growing up. Um, my stepdad was in the Peace Corps and he was in Sierra Leone for a few years and he brought back this word I don't remember what language, but it's, it's whoa, whoa. And so we would, and it, it basically, it means just not good off. So we say, I'm, I'm feeling whoa, whoa, which is that I'm feeling sick. I don't know what's going on yet, but it's I, such an appropriate word for that feeling. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. And, and so we, st- I still use that sometimes with my mom, but <laughs> with, with Dave, we've just, we meow at each other a lot. It's not like it, it's not a meow, but it's just that inquisitive little meow. Ah. And and it's gotten to the point that that Dave does it all the time and doesn't even realize it, which would explain why he didn't talk about it at all. <laughs> One of his students, he'll he meows and he's like, "Oh, sorry, I I didn't mean to do that." Oh, like not just at home with you. He'll do it like. And the students are like, Mister blank you you do that all the time (laughs) why are you we're used to it you just go meow all the time and he was just completely taken aback the the student was like you think this is new right like (laughs) no like this is a thing this you you've been doing this for years and no so it's just kind of that like you there's a meow of you know are you okay are you good what's what's going on or would you, There's would this you say? Yeah. of you know I've had a bad day and I'm feeling overwhelmed oh it has different different ones even if you think of all the the ways that a cat yeah wow there's so many different it just becomes this catch-all word like we can have an entire conversation where we're just saying wow to each other brilliant and I just I, I love the fact that he thought he didn't do it around his students and they're like no you you do that multiple times a day <laughs> that's so great we want to be respectful of your time and we could talk to you for hours and I could absolutely talk for hours but I do really need to pee <laughs> it's been a pleasure it has been a pleasure thank you so much thank you so much Yeah, absolutely. Thank you both. This was great. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.